Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. He is the Messiah from the line of David. Matthew shows us that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. Matthew tells us Jesus is going to bring God's blessing to all the nations, just like Moses did. Jesus' kingdom is about God's rescue operation for the whole world. It's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. Everyone is invited. Everyone is called to turn, to repent, to follow Jesus, and to join his family. Matthew is about the people who are unimportant, the nobodies, the irreligious. These are the people who are transformed by their willingness to trust, to have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today. Let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. And I'm glad that you're with us here. I'm part of the pastoral team at First Christian and uh, looking forward to spending some time with you in Scripture today. We're going to be reading from, by the way, uh, can we just thank, in both rooms, can we thank the worship teams for making it happen for us today? And uh, welcome to everybody in the West Auditorium, everybody in the East Auditorium. We're very glad everybody's here today and uh, it's good to have you here. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 today, but before we get to that, it's, it's a very intriguing passage of Scripture that will, in fact, challenge us in ways that are going to be a little bit uncomfortable today. So to get ready for that, I, I thought um, just this morning I asked the tech team if I could add something to my message. Could we find some time in the service and would they be able to get some words on screens quickly? And so we pulled that off today. This is going to come on up. And um, this is really, um, it's a song that goes back years. And it's, it's a song that really some of you may know that talks about an Old Testament passage of Scripture where the prophet says, God, I, I feel like this lump of clay, and I want my life to best represent how that clay should be molded and shaped and used by you. And so to that end, we're going to sing a song, and I'm going to invite you, if you know it already, to join with Leslie, or if you don't know it, to learn it quickly. And uh, it's really a prayer that is very apropos given the topic that we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 2 today. So, as I said, it's old. I don't know if it's a hymn really. I suppose it's a hymn, right? It's kind of a hymn-like thing. It goes like this. Have I known So we're going to sing another verse of it, and um, in both auditoriums, can you make it a prayer? Sing it boldly, and yet reverently saying, I, this, if I sing this, God might indeed do something in me. So let's sing it again. Have
again. That's our prayer. At least we think it's our prayer. We're willing to risk it. Quite aware, Lord, that to say, Lord, when we say you are in charge and we want you to have your way with us, within us, that it, uh, it might have some implications for how we live our lives this week. But the truth be told, we want to live our lives more acutely attuned to you and to Jesus Christ this week. So. Um, in that regard, take our risky prayer and uh, allow us to live it out and to hear from your word today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, will you take your Bible, please, then, friends? Turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you're unfamiliar with Scripture, uh, it's about three-quarters of the way through the Bible. In both auditoriums, there are Bibles available, both here in the west, in the pew rack, and in the east. There's some people moving around the room right now with Bibles. And while you're looking for Matthew chapter 2, I want to show you a slide that is um, one of my favorite paintings. It's, it's titled, Rest on the Flight into Egypt. It's by a French painter, Luc Mousson. Uh, Mousson painted in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. And he, um, he was known primarily for p making paintings that were then transformed into postage stamps for the French government. But a few paintings uh, got beyond that, this one being one of it. It shows, um, it shows, if you will, a very tired family. I like the uh, symbolism that you see there. The wisp of smoke, how it's barely there coming up from the fireplace. Uh, the donkey is tied up. You've got the, the Sphinx, the um, metaphor of Egypt. Interesting looking to heaven. Isn't that interesting? And then you have um, a worn out family, Joseph and Mary. Uh, laying down, and the baby Jesus, uh, not necessarily a newborn infant, but um, just resting. It really is, uh, if you will, it's the story of the Holy Family as a refugee family, and it's what we're going to look at today, and some of you go, oh great, refugees. We came to church today, wanted to get away from the political rhetoric, wanted to get away from the stuff. Are we really going to do politics today? Well, let me back you up. Before we, before we make any pronouncements or any judgments, See if we can see what Scripture has to say today. I, I, uh, to that, sort of that end, let me say, first of all, uh, many of you know that Leslie and I were out of town last weekend, and we were at an event where there were 40 pastors and spouses um, gathered. They're, they're all uh, pastors of churches of, of our profile, if you will, similar budgets, multi-staff, multi-venue, really reliant on technology and that sort of stuff. And it's a group where you sit around a table, and it's not this big conference, but it's more so very intimate sit around a table with four or five people, and a question is posed from the podium, if you will, how do you guys manage this? And so you kind of go around and you learn from each other how we manage 
budgets and people and pews and whatever, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so we're there and lots of conversations come up and what are you preaching next week? Well, somebody asked me, I said, well, I'm preaching on Matthew 2. And this guy looks at me and goes, Wayne, are you sure you want to do that? Well, I, I know. He says, do you know Matthew 2 is about refugees? I said, yeah. He says, do you want to talk about refugees, refugees in church while you're in the midst of all of that? Well, so last week Brian was preaching and he did such a great job on Genesis 1. And um, I watched it on video. And if you didn't get a chance to look at it, you need to go and catch it because it's brilliant preaching. And I, I'd said to this guy, well, you know, I've got a strong preacher who's there preaching, you know, it's a great preaching team. And he said, you're doing Matthew chapter 2. You sure you don't want him to preach again? And you just stay here in Florida. It was, the thought occurred to me. The thought occurred to me by all means because, well... Matthew chapter 2 is going to be difficult for us to read in light of the present circumstances in our nation. But if you're in a series where you say you're going to work through a book from start to end, you can't pick and choose as to when you're going to read something, right? So you can't run away from what the Bible might say. So I'm going to suggest to you today that regardless of your position today about the national debate about immigration or illegal immigration or the struggles of refugees around the world, we're all going to be equally frustrated equally challenged, and equally informed about the Bible teaches in that matter. See, here's, what, here's how I approach preaching every week. I'm aware that I have the Bible in one hand and I have the newspaper in the other hand, or social media, current events, and I have to see how those inform one another. That's very common in preaching to say what are current events and where's the Bible and all that. There are two approaches though in that regard, and one is to read the Bible under the influence of the culture. What is, what's going on in the culture and see if the Bible might say, might say something to that about the topics in the newspaper, about social media, about the press. The problem though is that if the culture, like you've experienced, the culture is consistently changing, right? And things that we say we're going to do now, we wouldn't have done 10 years ago, and we know it's going to change again in 10 years from now. And so. The, the problem with letting culture lay on top of the Bible is that there's a tendency to interpret the Bible in light of current events. you still got the two things, but I'd suggest there's a better approach, and that's to do a flip-flop. Settle on what Scripture says first, settle on biblical theology, and then interpret current events in light of a consistent truth. The second tr approach is far more credible. It allows the Bible to speak to culture, to current events, and it lets the Bible win, if you will, because here's the, our understanding, that we decide truth from Scripture, live accordingly, despite what the culture may do. It's not up to the culture, it's up to what does God say. Now, I know that's not very popular, but that, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to land there. That's what we do. And so when you're looking at the book of Matthew as we're taking this long amble for many weeks through uh, this biography of Jesus, we're going to do what Matthew did. As you read the book of Matthew, Matthew consistently looks for ways in which Jesus is going to bring God's truth to the culture where he lived and he worked. And time and time again, this book is going to show us how Jesus held the newspaper of his day, if you will, current events and God's truth in each hand and turned the current events, common thinking, completely upside down and said, no, this is, the, this is how the kingdom of God really works, not, how about you, not about how you read it in the newspaper. So, to that extent, read with me in Matthew chapter 2 and see what we can learn together. Matthew 2, beginning at verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, these are the wise men, okay? Herod is the king of the nation, if you will, but of course he's the puppet government of the Roman Empire. 
So the Magi come from the east to Jerusalem and ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and it have come to worship him. Now Herod is quite stunned by this. He didn't know a king had been born. He has plans that when he dies, his son or sons or various portions, of, you know, generation, generation, they're going to take over his throne. And now he's learned there's a new king on, on the scene and he doesn't know about this. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So what did he do? He calls together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asks them, well, there, there's some, isn't there something in our scriptures about where a Messiah, a new king, is coming from? Do you know anything about that? And they say, oh, yeah. A Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod is quite stunned by this. What? It's not my family? I'm not from Bethlehem. What's going on here? So, Herod, he, he's lying through his teeth. We're about to see where he's absolutely just lying to these, to these magi, to the wise men. He called the magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and worship him. That's not his plan. We're going to read in a few minutes. He has a significantly different plan for that little baby boy. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And so they'd been on this long trek from the east and they finally followed the star. They stopped in Jerusalem expecting the king there in the capital city. No, they're in a little town called Bethlehem and it stops and they go, wow, our long journey has come to an end. And so what do they do? They go into the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures, three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So we've just come through the season of Christmas and Advent, haven't we? And you would expect, hey, Wayne, you know, here it is. Okay, yeah, it's February, but didn't we just do this already? I mean, focus on Jesus' birth. Well, can I say, well, it's common for us to put this event in the Christmas Advent season. And it's also common for you to put these three, three guys, right? Three kings in your nativity scene. You have them sitting on the coffee table and you've got the three kings there. But actually, we don't know if that's the real way it went, went down. We say it at Christmas. I mean, we, we let that kind of carry on. But perhaps they weren't there right at Christmas time. Perhaps they were there a little time after. It might have been up to two years later. Biblical scholars don't know a lot about these guys that showed up. They're, they're wise guys. Wise guys come along. I like that. The wise guys show up, you know? And um, it could have been two years later. Most nativity scenes number them as three, but there's no defined reason to state it as such. Obviously, you've got three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But two guys could carry three gifts, right? Or 15 guys could carry three gifts. The Bible neither affirms nor denies how many wise men there were. And it wasn't the, po the point of their gifts is not, is, their giving of gifts is not the point of the story. Why did they come? They came to visit a king. A king has been born. And Herod didn't know about it. And he didn't want anyone stepping into his role. And trouble in paradise is about to come along. Verse 13. After they had gone, notice they didn't go back to Herod. So Herod's waiting for them to show up. And they don't come, they don't come, they don't come. What happens? After they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, Joseph being the adopted father. Take the child and his mother. Escape to Egypt, 
Why don't I have to escape to Egypt? Well, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. You got to get out of here. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So he's in Egypt now. The little baby is in Egypt. That's the picture, Mersault picture of Jesus sitting, laying on the, on the Sphinx. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, they didn't show up. We don't know how long it was that they didn't show up, but he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were, catch this, two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So two years now have passed, somehow or other, since Jesus was born or since all this began to take place. That's why we don't know if the Magi showed up when Jesus was, you know, a tiny eight-day-old infant. We just know there's a, 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 a period of time he's still a baby. And then the killings take place. All the little boys in the Bethlehem area, under two years of age, are murdered. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because the children are no more. Now, can I remind you what we've been talking about in recent days, recent weeks, weekends here? We've said that Matthew will repeatedly show how Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah, and that to bring that home and to, to emphasize that, he will repeatedly draw similarities between Jesus and Moses, the key leader who helped establish the Israelites' national identity and faith. And to that end, you, if you think about the story of Jesus and the story of Moses, there are parallels even when they are babies. Where was Moses from? He was Jewish, but he was from Egypt, right? And why did he become part of the Pharaoh's family and eventually lead the Israelites out of Egypt? Because remember, Pharaoh had said, I don't want any Jewish baby boys to live. And he had arranged for all the baby boys in Egypt to be killed. And so here, what do you have? You have a parallel with Jesus that here he arrives where? In Egypt. Why? Because all the baby boys have been killed. Now, Herod, in his case, he doesn't want a king to be born. He doesn't know the exact timing for this new king, so there's just this blanket edict, kill the Jewish babies two years and under. And thus, Joseph and Mary rush to Egypt, and you have the French artist's painting of the family escaping Herod. So you have, if you will, the parallels that we know of from Scripture between Jesus and Moses. And we're going to see that repeatedly as we make our way through Matthew. But for today, this is also the place in Jesus' story where Jesus, the events of Jesus' life and the present-day setting of the plight of refugees around the world also parallel one another. Again, remember, we're choosing to state the truth of Scripture and then interpret current events in light of that truth. And who are we kidding? This is a hard one to take on, particularly in light of all the heated debate and rhetoric of the past 18 months, and particularly the last three or four weeks. We, you've got everybody talking about refugees and immigration and what to do about it, and we've had edicts come out of Washington, and, all, and courts are getting, it's been a mess, hasn't it? And then in the midst of that, as Christians, we say we want to hold the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other, we want to define truth and let truth win out over that mess, what do you do? Well, in the next few minutes, I invite you to listen very carefully. 
And let's see what we can do to look at the world setting without the political rhetoric of the debate that's running in our nation. And as we do, we've got to acknowledge this, that there's a difference between immigration, illegal immigration, and the plight of the refugees moving around the world. Sadly, the rhetoric of late, I'm, as I've listened, the rhetoric of late has, there, we've lost in, our, in the national debate, we've lost the nuances and the differences between the three different reasons why people leave one nation for another, immigration, illegal immigration, and refugee status. And I would remind you, as, even as I bring these thoughts to you, I'm an immigrant. I've immigrated twice. If you're unfamiliar with who I am, I was born and raised in Australia, have a long family history there going back for generations, back to the 1840s. You can see all that there. When I was 11, my family immigrated from Australia to Canada. And then when Leslie and I got married as adults, uh, Leslie being American, me being Canadian at that point, I immigrated to the US. Now, I, I want to really point out that I immigrated, I didn't migrate. There is a difference. <laughs> Birds migrate. People immigrate. I was, I, yes, I'm a Canadian, but I wasn't like the Canadian geese, ooh, 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 coming south. That wasn't me, no. I immigrated, all right? And so, uh, enough said. I'm aware of this, that what I'm about to tell you today might influence you, or it might even frustrate you. What I'm hoping what will happen today is that it will generate some discussion that might take places around the table at lunch today. And please, let me present to you a full biblical response to Matthew chapter 2 before you make up your mind of whether or not you agree or disagree with me. Because at some points along the way, you're going to say, he's making me mad at other points. He's, I'm with him all the way. You know, Scripture talks about presenting the full counsel of God. So don't stop listening before we get to the end, okay? If Brian were here, I think I'd ask him to come and preach for me, right? Starting right about now. This would be a good time, okay? I'm only going to speak to the issue of refugees today. I, I, immigration, illegal immigration is a different matter altogether. I'm confident that this congregation has the smarts enough to d know the nuances between those three things, immigration, illegal immigration, and refugees. I'm only speaking to the issue of refugees because it's only, that's the story that's coming out of Scripture, all right? And if, with that in mind, it's fair to say that if a definition of a refugee is a person who is leaving their home, running from their home for fear of how the government, Herod, might bring harm to you or your family, or in Syria, the Syrian government, or wherever, wherever place you want to look at, it's appropriate to say that Jesus' family was a refugee family. If that's the definition, it's fair to say that Jesus' family was a refugee family because they fled from their homeland, from Bethlehem, raced to Egypt because Herod and his minions wanted the baby boy killed. That's a clear parallel between Jesus' story and the present worldwide refugee crisis that we face. But who are we kidding? Just saying that Jesus was part of a refugee family doesn't solve the refugee crisis in the world. It doesn't present us with a biblical plan other than to say, well, Jesus was a refugee at one point. Well, that's okay, but what's that got to do with us sort of thing? Well, a better question might be, was, what would the Bible, what would God's instructions expect of Jesus' followers given the present setting? Well, let me start with some basic overall understandings of how the Bible presents this kind of question. Scripture clearly expects God's people to have open and welcoming arms, like live lives like this, because we mirror God and God lives like this. 
God's kingdom is not limited to one subset of human lineage. All people are created in God's image. All people are welcomed into a, a relationship with the divine through Jesus Christ. Scripture states there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you, everyone is invited into this relationship through Jesus Christ. In other words, all nations, all peoples, all genders, all persuasions, all colors, all faiths, Catch me, listen carefully. All faiths are, in, are invited into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I want to be clear that you hear it's through Jesus Christ. And if you come through Jesus Christ, that would mean a changing of your faith. But nonetheless, everyone is invited in. We saw that last week in the passage that Brian presented to us. He helped us study the stories of the people who were in Jesus' lineage, in his family. The stories of people in his direct bloodline who were, frankly, initially from outside the Jewish faith. And it's fascinating to me that even in the beginning of the book of Matthew, in that list of name after name after name, what do you see there? If you read between the lines, you see divine providence, divine direction, heavenly guidance that you can see directly there in Matthew 1. The biblical story showing over and over again that God ordained that outsiders should be brought into Jesus' family. And in doing so, you see... Outsiders are welcome in. And that, that's the pattern of the biblical story from the early days of the Israelite nation. Moses, main leader as they, as they develop their national, national life, you see him speaking on behalf of God, saying to the Jewish people, take in people into the nation outside the Jewish bloodline. And as he was developing the nation's polity and their cultural identity and their spirituality under Jehovah God, one God. He said this, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them. Go back and remember what it was like to live in Egypt as slaves. Remember how you felt like outsiders. Don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. They were to treat foreigners with kindness. And so some of you might too quickly jump to a conclusion. Well, obviously, if the people of Israel were supposed to do that, then we should too. And since Jesus was a refugee and the Israelites were to invite people in and show kindness, then we need to bring the refugees here as well. And I would say to you that's the case if that's the full story of Scripture. But you need to keep reading and need to keep thinking about the full counsel of God. Because the Bible has some warnings about what to expect and what to ask of those who come in as foreigners into the land. See, the people of Israel followed Moses' decrees regularly. You see, from time to time, every generation it appears, they would welcome people from other lands, and they'd get to know those people, and their kids would fall in love, the kids would intermarry, they would create businesses together, they, the nation entered into international treaties, and all that was appropriate. But Moses did say that when others arrive from outside the nation, you Israelites should allow them in, be kind to them, based though not on a particular, based, pardon me, on a particular criteria beyond just human kindness and welcoming. He said any people coming into Israel from outside were to assimilate into Jewish culture and Jewish language and Jewish religion. The people listed in Jesus' genealogy who were outside the faith get listed in Jesus' genealogy. Why? Because they all converted. 
The biblical record shows that whenever the Israelites failed to demand, and I mean demand, when they failed to demand assimilation in regards to language, culture, and faith, national identity, the whole thing, that's when the nation got into trouble. You have these stories where they, they brought people in and then they allowed those people to set up foreign gods. Do you think about the stories out of the Old Testament? They set up their foreign gods. And how does the scripture describe it? That Israel prostituted themselves and began worshiping those other gods. And every time that occurred, the nation took a downward spiral. They would begin to lose military battles. The economy would turn chaotic. Families were lost. It was horrendous. Why? They didn't demand that the foreigners convert. God said, welcome foreigners, but have them convert. And when they did, you end up with great stories like Jesus' genealogy. When they didn't, disaster ensued. It was a cycle that you can read in the Old Testament over and over again throughout the Israelite history. And so then you go, okay, pastor, how does that apply to this setting today? Here in the West, here in the U.S., when people come to, from overseas, can we demand they assimilate in regards to culture, language, and even religions, particularly since we don't have one religion? What are we going to do about that? We have to acknowledge that the U.S., after all, is not ancient Israel. We are not operating as a theocracy where all the nation is supposed to be of one religion. The U.S. is a democratic republic, and we don't demand from the very beginnings of this nation, we didn't demand that all follow the same religion. What are we going to do? I suspect some of you will say, well, Pastor, see, here's where I've got it figured out. Everything you've been talking about right now is pre-Jesus stuff. It's the Old Testament stuff. And, you know, we're Christians, and uh, we don't have to really worry quite so much about the Old Testament. It's nice stories, but do we have to, can, can we just kind of leave the Old Testament behind and say, well, Jesus came along to change the way of faith, and we don't have to follow instructions like that, do we? Well, I don't know what you're going to do about Matthew. Again, pointing out how Jesus is always coming out of the Old Testament story and the Old Testament setting. Remember that Matthew tells us that Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of Moses' teaching. I didn't get, come to get rid of what, what Christians call the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, that's a long time from now. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So the instructions from Moses about welcoming people and then having them convert is still in play. But we live in the United States where we don't tell people to convert, do we? What would you have them convert to? So you say, well, I don't know what to do. Well, you have to go back to what Jesus said. What can we apply from the Old Testament? And what can we learn from the New Testament because the call of Jesus' people if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, is to be people of generosity and open arms. In fact, when it comes to dealing with people you don't know, the New Testament is very plain about being open. We read in Hebrews, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Well, who are we kidding? At this point, so you go, whoa, Wayne, this is a lot of ideas. You got... Okay, I'm supposed to welcome strangers because maybe they're angels and I don't know how I identify an angel. And um, I, I, I'm supposed to welcome foreigners. The Old Testament says I'm supposed, to allow, I'm supposed to allow the Bible to influence culture and bring people in and demand they assimilate. What do you want me to do? Or more importantly, what should our nation do? Hmm. Well, some responses to that. 
after making the case for what Scripture has to say. I'll say this. I really am glad I'm not responsible for making decisions about our national policy regarding refugees. I'm a pastor. I'm not a politician. I will acknowledge this, that just shutting the doors to new visas or refugees is not the norm neither for American policy nor our American ethos. Our history points us in another direction. Yet an open-door policy without limits is both unwise and potentially unsafe. So as you mull this over and chat about this at lunch today, I'd like to give you some concrete things to think about. We cannot ask our leaders to take the extremes of two approaches, and I'm afraid that the rhetoric of late is pushing the nation to one extreme or the other. We cannot ask them to be naive. There are groups of people, there are individuals, there are subsets of some religions that absolutely hate us and hate our American way of life, and they particularly hate Christians. We know that. September 11, 2001 showed us that beyond a shadow of a doubt, let alone the things that have taken place since then. I remember that day. It is forever seared in my memory. My office at the time was back um, on, in, on, the, on, the, on the south end of the lobby, had a TV in there, and as the events started unfolding about 8 o'clock that morning, all the staff were in my office for a long period of time, and we watched and we were horrified. And who thought of doing it? You couldn't do any work. You, you were watching history take place right in front of you. And, but after about an hour and a half, close to two hours, we, we kind of said, okay, we're just going to let that kind of play, and we'll try and do some work. And so they all left my office, and I remember standing there at the television, 10 feet away from it maybe, and seeing on live television that first tower fall. And my immediate response was this, uh, something I don't do. I cried out loud, ah! Just like that. The staff came running. And there was this sense within me, I have just seen the deaths of thousands of people right in front of my eyes. And that is forever seared in my memory. It has shaped who I am today. Absolutely. Not only because of the way in which those people died, and not only the way in which their families have suffered ever since and struggled ever since to lose somebody that way. But also, the, my uh, first response was, how many of them who died knew Jesus Christ? That, that was my immediate, like, we just saw souls race into eternity and I don't have any guarantee that they knew Christ. That shapes me to this day. Friends, there is nothing in Scripture that calls a person to intentionally or even unwillingly bring harm into his home, into her house, into their community, into their nation. The Bible does, as a matter of fact, the Bible always speaks about one of the, one of the marks of the blessing of God is peace and safety. Think of it this way. Joseph was Jesus' adopted father, a righteous man. And what did he do in response to the danger that was coming his way? He took that little nuclear family and he raced away from Bethlehem to ensure safety for that family. Welcoming danger into your home, into your nation is not biblical. It is non-biblical. Unbiblical. We can't ask our leaders to be naive. On the other hand, though, a nationalism that is based on closed borders and protectionism to the extreme is non-American. 
We should and we do love these United States of America, our Western ideals, all, I'm convinced, all shaped by the story and history of Scripture. Our ideals that include welcome arms, open hearts to all who choose to live here, who all who choose to accept our values, even our diverse faiths, and our democratic way of life. We must hold on to that. And I don't know how all this is going to play out. I'm quite convinced the decisions that are made in the next few months and the next few years, most of us in this room, in, in listening today, most of us here at First Christian, we won't know how it all plays out. I think it's a story that will be told in five or six generations from now. In the meanwhile, then, what are we going to do? To that end, Christians have to pray. In the midst of the difficulty that we face as a nation, in the midst of the difficulty our world faces, we have to pray. We have to pray for leaders of our nation. We have to pray for the leaders of this world, and we have to pray for the. We have to pray for those who are refugees. I don't want to see another photo of a baby having fallen off an open boat in the open ocean. I don't want to see that. And in the light of the prayer, in light of that sort of prayer, may I give you an immediate response of something you can do this week. We'll let others, for the time being, as we pray for them, be responsible for the nation and to come up with a viable plan. But in the meanwhile, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to welcome new people into my life. They may not be refugees from some foreign soil who don't speak my language. That might be the case. But I am not going to choose. I cannot be a closed person. I'm going to open my arms to new people, to new relationships, to new experiences. Excuse me, friends. That is biblical. That is mirroring the image of God. That's me being what God would call me to be. I'm going to express my conviction that God is in charge of my life. And if that's the case, then new adventures with new people await me, and they await you. I'm convinced, friend, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, new God-driven moments are available for you. And along the way, as you do this, you know what might happen? You know what might happen, which would be really cool, though apparently, according to Scripture, you may not realize it at the time. Hebrews chapter 13. You may not realize it at the time, but if you do this, apparently somewhere along the way, you might get to meet an angel or two. And that would be really cool. Let's pray together. God, we have the plight of people around the world, millions of people, God, who are stuck in refugee camps, people in open boats with children that don't have life preservers on. and oh, It's awful, God. It really is awful. And we sit here today and we realize that we don't face those dangers. Lord God Almighty, we pray for the plight of people around this world who are displaced. We pray, God, for an action plan that brings life and health and security to people. And, Lord, we pray that they would come to know Christ. Yes, even from faiths and religions that are far removed from Christian faith and that may not even, they may despise Christianity. Lord, we pray for a change in that. We pray for our leaders. May they have wisdom given from you to know how to respond. And we pray for us, God, that we would never choose to be closed and kind of bound up, but rather open to new people and new ideas, new possibilities of God-driven moments that you're bringing to us. May the people of this church be known in our community as welcoming people. In Christ's name, amen.